0: Here we are, uh, December the 4th, 2016, lecture discussion number 264, maybe, who can really know the number anymore? Am I right on 264? Maybe, maybe you're not right either, maybe we're all wrong, probably at at a minimum, I've met 264, I've got a dozen counting errors by now, so who can know? It should say lecture 264, I guess, uh, within the margin of error, uh, plus or minus 3 to 7%, That should placate the CLDA, uh, Cliffside Legal Defense Authority, If you're wondering. I have some interesting letters. Uh, these are pretty funny. Uh, this is from J. Uh, Byron. Your video address you suggest we use for questions sends us to the Recovery Center in Malibu. That may not be an accident. After you listen to one of my lectures, you might need to go to the recovery center in Malibu of all places. That looked pretty good to me. So let me repeat that. The video address you suggest we use for questions sends us to a recovery center in Malibu. I did not check to see if they offer help with Coke and Kentucky Fried Chicken. You are a dot org, not a dot com. I recently found your YouTube channel and am very blessed by it. Thank you. And, well, uh, oh, no, it's, uh, yes, okay, Joe. Uh, Joe, thanks for writing that. That's very good. We appreciate it. I will hand it to the powers that be and make sure that he does very little. I mean, he will take care of it. almost fell and broke my neck there. Can you see that? And this is uh, from last uh, week. John from Pennsylvania sent me the rest of his letter that did not make it through last week. Dear Diet Coke, this is my second letter. Apparently my first was lost. I am recommending Pastor Steve Cronister of Cliffside Community Chapel, Anchorage, Alaska, to you. He faithfully promotes your product every week. He even puts it on a pedestal and says he can't get through the service without it, which is absolutely true. I've tried. I can't. He is in need of a new video camera to better focus on the Diet Coke. See what he did there? That's really good. <laughs> Please consider his faithfulness and need. <laughs> John from Pennsylvania. Uh, you people out there are just marvelous, and I very much appreciate it. Okay, here we are. November 27, 2016, which was last week's so-called lecture number 263. I ended it mercifully with some of the elements of the middle of the tribulation. And here they are in exhibit A on the board. Let me make sure it can be seen and not interfered with by the Diet Coke. Which is more important, our allegiance to Coca-Cola or the board? Well, we see who won. Now, this is some of the elements of the middle of the tribulation being put in order. And notice uh, the plausible deniability included in that last sentence. It's an order, not necessarily the definitive the order as opposed to the definitive. And this might be a tacit admission that my list, my ordering of my list, the events of the middle of the tribulation may be subject to dispute. I know, Who who could imagine such a thing? You all say, how can this be so? People would dispute with this. It's sad to say it's more common than we can conceive. I, as you might know, read as many opposing views as I can every week. I want to know what everyone thinks about everything, especially those who disagree with me. What are their um what are their Reasons for doing so, and who are these who dare to cast aspersions upon my positions, you ask, with rage and righteous indignation? Actually, about 80% of all commentators disagree with me on this particular issue. I have some wonderful people who don't. Arnold Kruppenbaum, for one, and I agree. That gives me great confidence. He's a tremendous scholar. and. I count myself fortunate to have about 17% in total who agree with some of my conclusions here with respect to the middle of the tribulation. That 3% are completely unaware that this is even something to discuss, much less that it has any kind of issue to it. So to sum that up, I have few friends. Let the record show that none in the congregation expressed any shock at all. Primarily, the disagreement is where I have item number five, the resurrection of the Antichrist, which occurs in the middle of the tribulation, which is why the diagram is called the middle of the tribulation, in case you think I'm not organized at all. And you will see that I place the resurrection of the Antichrist after Satan is thrown to the earth. As a note, as an aside, When Satan is removed from heaven, darkness is removed from heaven. Darkness is no longer in heaven. If darkness is no longer in heaven, what is in heaven only? Light. So some of you would immediately see Genesis 1-4, and appropriately so. God separates the darkness from the light. He's doing it here in heaven. The darkness is being separated from the light in heaven. So, where was I? After the war in heaven, where the darkness is thrown to the earth, Satan is thrown to the earth. Uh, After the war on earth, there is a war on earth as well, in which the Antichrist is killed. After those happen, and number one, of course, is the judgment seat of Christ. That's my order. The believers are in front of Christ being judged. A war is happening on earth in which the Antichrist is killed. A war then erupts in heaven after, at the end of which Satan is thrown to the earth. And after all of that, the Antichrist is resurrected. You can see, I ask, why is he resurrected and how is he resurrected? So, the Antichrist is killed by the three kings of the 10 kings there are 10 kings three of which are able to kill the antichrist while there's a war in heaven going on the 10 kings of course are the iron toes mixed with clay of Daniel 2:40 40 through 43 of these ten world kings, three of them succeed in killing the Antichrist. So what do we know about the three now that killed the Antichrist? Let's ask a couple of questions. How powerful is the Antichrist? Pretty darn powerful. Who can kill a guy like that? Three kings are able to do so. So how powerful is these, are these iron mixed with clay three kings? They're obviously very powerful. What is the meaning of iron mixed with clay? That's how they're described. Who else is iron mixed with clay? Well, the other seven kings. All ten of them are that way. Is there any differentiation between the iron mixed with clay percentage of each one? Who else in all of history has also been iron mixed with clay? Do you suppose that this is the only time in history here in Revelation where it is told us that iron was mixed with clay and that's the only time it ever happened? Or has it happened before? Daniel 2.43 As you saw iron mixed with clay, they will mingle with the seed of men, but they will not adhere to one another, just as iron does not mix with clay. That's where it comes from. These ten kings are iron mixed with clay. Let me repeat that. As you saw iron mixed with clay, Daniel was being shown iron mixed with clay. They will mingle with the seed of men, but they will not adhere to one another. Just as iron does not mix with clay. So who's the they in that passage? Who is the they who will mix with the seed of men, but will not adhere? What does adhere mean in the context of Daniel 2? 43. In fact, in the context of Daniel 2 and now in the context of Revelation 17 where the 10 kings show up again. Obviously, it's a very complicated passage. It requires resolution. But for today, I submit without fear of being defeated. I know, pretty bold talk for a one-eyed fat man. That the Antichrist, who is the 11th horn, attacks these ten kings and three of them are able to kill the Antichrist. And he's dead in that war on earth. And who do you think he's in war with? Who are the ten kings again? The ten toes mixed with iron and clay? Who are they? They're the rulers of the world. They have ten world kingdoms. You can do them in your head. North America, a kingdom, South America, a kingdom, that's two. Africa, a kingdom, that's three. Australia, a kingdom, that's four. Europe, a kingdom, five, Middle East, Russia, China, Indonesia, India. You can make your ten kings. There's ten world we ten world kings, if you will, that have control, and those kings are iron mixed with clay. The Antichrist is the eleventh. And he does the what immediately? He attacks them. And they, three of them, are able to kill him. So, and the war in heaven is between Satan's forces and Michael's forces. And both of these war, in my view, let me make a little illustrative mark. Both of these. Or simultaneous. So, two wars, one on earth, one in heaven. In the one on earth, the Antichrist is defeated, and the one in heaven, Satan is defeated. And it's therefore logical that they, Satan and the Antichrist, combine at this point. When he is thrown to the earth, it is logical, as I'm saying, that they begin to uh, unite. And Satan again combines with his seed. Notice how I said that, John thirteen twenty seven. Satan combines again with his seed. And the power that this intermixing Satan and the Antichrist conjoining together is sufficient now to kill those three kings. And that leaves eight. Ten minus three equals eight. And I'm not insulting you. I know you know what I'm saying there, so I won't explain it. But clearly the seven, seven iron clay toes remaining are convinced that the Antichrist now has the capacity to kill them as well. And having said that, I intentionally passed through, passed over, implied something is true, and this is precisely where the 80% of prophecy scholars rise up and yell at me and protest. Because I have what is called the literal position of item number five, uh, Antichrist resurrected. I have the position that says that this is absolutely a resurrection. And that's controversial to say the least. 80% are not friendly, typically, to those of us who hold to a really dead, really resurrected view. That's what I have. And it's time to back up a little bit, get a little bit, I'm ahead of the process again. Jesus Christ is God himself, without dispute, and he is the seed of the woman. That's one of his names, seed of the woman. And that is not an allegorical title. That is a literal title. Genesis 3.15, and that title, that term verifies that he had to be born of a virgin. We've been over this, this is the continuity of germ cell plasm, it's somatic cells, it's germ cells, it's the ovum, it is the process in which the human body develops and how it is that a virgin woman would allow God to be what he wanted to be. And he I won't cover it again today, but you know this is the lecture. It's somewhere on the internet. And God was born of a virgin. Mary gave birth to infinite God. That's what happened. Ask why. Jesus Christ, the creator of all things, was born of a woman and is therefore now fully human, albeit a perfect humanity, Always understand that his humanity is perfect. Do not put your imperfect anthropomorphization onto him. Barely got that word out. More medicine. We have a tendency to put our sinful thought processes inside of a perfect human being. Not going to work. Especially one that is also simultaneous or also in addition to his perfect humanity. His is his infinity. So... The Son of God, the infinite creator God, is born of a woman. And this is the mystery of godliness, uh, 1 Timothy 3.16. The great mystery of godliness, how I can get infinite God and have him add humanity. It's called the hypostatic union. Therefore, also without any argumentation, the Antichrist is the seed of the serpent. So that is what they are, both identified as such, Genesis three one five. This is literally true. I will put a check in the literally true box. Christ, God, was literally the seed of the woman. Again, continuity of germ cell plasm, look it up, study it, you'll understand why the virgin birth was one of the reasons why. If that is literally true, then this also is literally true. The Antichrist is the seed of the serpent. And therefore is the son of Satan. So there is only now one son of God, one seed of God, if you will, and only one Son of Satan. So, the Son of God and the Son of Satan, who is the seed of the old serpent. Side by side. Not equal. One's infinite God. One is a created being. So, what does it mean to be the seed of Satan? What is the biological, physical, metaphysical construct? In other words, who gave birth to the Antichrist? Do we know her name? Do we know the name of the woman who gave birth to God? Most of us do, but how about the name of the woman who gave birth to the Antichrist? The, the, what, did, what was the joke? Oh God! Oh, I can't say that, but that was very funny. Oh my goodness! No wonder you laughed. Okay, regather myself. (laughs) Do we know the name of the woman? Can we find it? Is it been made available to us? Can we infer it? When did it happen? Do we know when the seed of the serpent happened? Would the seed of the serpent, I always ask, be, be within the proximity of the seed of the woman? If I have the proximity... Time wise, then I think I can uh, begin to investigate it. So, submit your proposals after the lectures, uh, after the lecture operators are standing by. Many scholars have long known of this counterfeit stratagem of Satan, if you want to call it that, or gambit. The serpent always seems to place the fraudulent alongside of the authentic, as if to assure that mankind and the angelic realm. Always remember that the angelic realm is part of this. They're involved. Don't isolate them from what's going on. Again, I have a war in heaven and a war in earth. They are aware of the war on earth. Are we aware of the war on heaven? I asked that last couple weeks ago. Maybe we are. But be aware that there's something happening in heaven many, many times that corresponds to that which is happening on earth. So the serpent always puts the fraudulent aside the authentic and that way he assures that mankind and the angelic realm will be put in a position where they have to do something. What do they have to do? They have to choose. It appears that Satan is willfully forcing a choice. And I want you to think about that because when you recognize what's happening, that he is willfully forcing a choice on not just angels but on humanity, not just humanity but on angels, that means he knows something. This is part of what he thinks. I made the comment earlier uh, when I'm setting up all the equipment up here to supper day. Satan is playing, if you wish, this is an analogy. It's not even close. He's playing 3D chess. uh, And we're playing go fish. You have to recognize that what's going on with Satan is incredibly complicated. And to understand his motivation is critical to us understanding the events as well and the order. I'm saying to you that he puts something aside, he puts the fraud next to the true on purpose so that you will choose. Do you know one's a lie and one's the truth? Ask that. Do you, does mankind, do the angels willfully choose the lie knowing it's a lie? Okay, let me go. I, I diverted there. Now, perhaps you, you're going to contrast or compare what I just said to the to the choices of Adam with respect to the two trees in the midst of the garden, right? And notice I said choices. Adam had more than one choice to make. But I, I'm derailing again. Stop, stop yourself. The consequences as to free will capability with this counterfactual maneuver methodology that Satan employs, that's, that reaches far. Either Satan is certain free will is inseparable from true existence, or he is attacking, purposely attempting to discredit free will. That is ultimately where you will resolve default. And if he is successful in discrediting free will, in other words, if he is able to say there is no free will, you have no free will, you're all just robots, if he's able to do that, that means accountability is impossible, judgment is impossible, And then all we are left with is is chaos. And I've covered that in other philosophical lectures that were equally as dull as this one. In either case, the blueprint of Satan's intention is apparent. He presents an alternative all the time. He's always putting an alternative in front of us and the angelic host. I have Jerusalem and I have Babylon. I have the counterfeit and the authentic. I have the mystery of godliness, the seed of the woman. I have the mystery of sin, the seed of the serpent. I have Christ, the Lion of Judah. Satan is the roaring lion that devours. I have God uh, uh, puts a seal on the forehead of his believers. It's invisible. God likes um, things that are not visible physically. We have a tendency to like things that are physical and visible physically. You have to think spiritually. I am spirit, he says. But he puts a mark on our foreheads, the foreheads of his believers. Satan duplicates this for his worshippers, doesn't he, Revelation? He puts a mark on foreheads as well. So every time Christ has his bride, the church, Satan has his mystery whore religion. Uh, obviously, the Christ and the Antichrist, the seed of the woman, the seed of the serpent, the good shepherd, the idol, I-D-O-L, shepherd. The truth is always shadowed by the law. Christ is the truth, the scarlet beast is the lie, Second 2 Thessalonians 2.11. Literally, they are both called that. Christ is called the truth. The, the Antichrist is called the lie. And that's just to raise the most well-known of the, of the uh, choices, for lack of a better term. And this leads us back to the issue of the resurrection of the Antichrist. We should expect Christ dies. Did he really die? Now, the cults will say he did not. He he really died. The body died. He, the body is dead there. Christ dies. Did he literally resurrect? Yes. And he literally resurrected himself. Says so. I will resurrect myself. I can lay it down, lift it up, lay it down, lift it up. I can do whatever I want. So we should expect that Satan and his seed, his literal seed, and how did that happen? Again, begin to to, your your thought experiment as to how it is that Satan has a literal, physical seed. And a lot of people don't want Satan to have a literal, physical seed. They want the, the seed of Satan to be some kind of allegory. Do we have a literal, physical seed of God? So if I have a literal, physical seed of God, then I have a literal, physical seed of Satan. Now that forces me into positions that I have to defend, which is what I'm doing today, as you may have figured out. And we'd expect that Satan and his seed would produce a duplicate death and resurrection, wouldn't we? Would it be a real death and a real resurrection? That's the question. And that, uh, that by the way, that, that Satan would present a... A death, some kind of death and resurrection has never been brought into dispute. The question the contention comes forth with the actuality of the Antichrist's resurrection and death. By that, what do I mean? Let me rephrase. Did Satan and the Antichrist attain an unfeigned, a true resurrection? Try again. Does Satan have the capacity to do that? Does he possess, the devil possess, the power to retrieve the soul? Once the body and the soul have been separated, how far away is the soul from the body? If I die right here, bang, my soul is gone from my body. The separation, where'd the soul go? How far away? How many feet? Miles? Inches? Kilometers? You pick. Got to go get the soul, don't I? Put the system back together, I have to retrieve the soul. Does Satan possess the power to receive the soul, spirit, mind of the Antichrist, bring his dead body, the Antichrist's dead body, and likely this body is beheaded and split open and pierced? That is Goliath, Absalom, right? Anyway, can Satan locate the immaterial, the soul, and repair the physical while he's repairing the physical? What's happening to the physical? I can talk to I get medical professionals here. I die, bang. What's happened to me? How do I look when I'm dead? I have seen some dead bodies. Um, it is apparent that they are dead. Can Satan locate the immaterial, repair the physical, and restore the two parts to functionality? Does he have that ability? In other words, can Satan fully resurrect the dead? That's the question of item number five. See or no? Yes or no? And this is, to say the least, a difficult knot to untie. And there is tremendous amounts of food being thrown in the theological community over there. And lots of it is aimed at those of us who have the literal view. I take the literal view almost every... Well, okay, let me say that different. I take the literal view of Scripture 100% of the time. Now, I see the typological view. uh, I see the prophetical view. But I see the literal view every time. Um, That makes me uh, Controversial. I'll put it this way. I take the, the view that is the most Christ-honoring, g- g- God-honoring view every single time. The one that lifts Christ up, the one that is, is respectful of God. So those, for example, who think that the book of Genesis is not true, that God uh, allowed that to be written knowing that it was false... That is disrespectful. That cannot be the case, and I won't accept it. I will find the other position and defend it. And I think I can do so with uh, hardly any difficulty. But very much angst is generated over Revelation 13.3. That's this, Antichrist resurrected. And in the language there is really quite definitive. It's an idiom. It's utilized exactly as it is in Revelation 5, 6, where it's used to describe Christ's own resurrection. So I have a description of the seed of the serpent being resurrected and a description of the seed of the woman being resurrected, both being dead and resurrected, and the language is identical. Identical phrases. Idiom the same. It speaks of death and resurrection. I could go into the Greek phrases for you, and I won't. I'll just tell you that John uses a phrase in Revelation that talks about the head. And and the implication is is that the head is uh, is the Goliath position, right? He uses um, a, a word that talks about the body of the Antichrist being butchered. That's the phrase. The head decapitated, the body butchered. And then he uses a word that is definitively the death of the body. So if I take a Greek position, a Greek scholar position, I can't avoid that. And it also makes sense for me that they would both be literally the case. I'll explain why in a minute. The wounding of the Antichrist is therefore fatal. The whole world can see that he was blown to pieces almost, if you will. But he's definitely cut to pieces. And I believe that he is cut to pieces, not blown, because that fits the typological elements in the Old Testament. He's dead, and he is obviously dead. John says, head, slaughter, butcher, death of the body. And at the same time, Satan is cast out of heaven, thrown to earth. So, death of the Antichrist, Satan, right there. Together. And as soon as he can, the Antichrist is resurrected. And the whole world is astonished by this. And they marvel at it. And who can kill this beast, they ask? Revelation thirteen four. Who is like the beast? Those are rhetorical questions that assume the negative. No one is able to kill this beast. And no one is like this beast. That's what the world says when the Antichrist is resurrected. Are they, is this something that could fool Penn and Teller? You know what I'm talking about. Is this a, a magician trick? Is this killing somebody and swapping somebody else out and making you think it's really happening? The world is astonished and marvels, and they ask these questions. The whole world worships the dragon and worships the beast, and I submit that that is because the dragon and the beast have become unified again. Satan has entered the beast. The two are coalesced in the body of the beast again. Notice my little unconcealed advocacy for a position that I hold there. I've said before, the removal of the darkness from heaven directly results in the resurrection of the beast, which causes the worldwide worship of the dragon beast, because now they're together, which is proven, the fact that the dragon and the beast are together is proven, because the dragon and the beast go out and kill these three kings that are iron mixed with clay. Now everyone capitulates. So, A causes B. The judgment seat of Christ causes a war in, um, in heaven. That causes also simultaneously a war on earth is happening. Then comes Satan thrown to earth because of this war in heaven. The Antichrist killed because of the war on earth. And that, those four, result in the Antichrist being resurrected. Straight line path. That's why my order is the way it is. Now we've got to deal with the problems. should probably make a list of all the problems. I won't. I'll ask this first. Can omnipresence move? That is not going to be on my list. Don't be alarmed. That's just for one listener in Phoenix. Just thought I'd throw it in. It's what I call fun. I try to include the vast Internet audience. There's where I did it. But can omnipresence move? God is omnipresent. Can he move? You decide. You can spend the rest of the lecture time on that. I'm moving on. Okay, how many times has Satan entered... Judas, that's another question that you have to ask. How many times did he do it? Do you know, do you know, do you know? It is controversial or in dispute. No one is necessarily sure, except me. I'm pretty positive. No one likes that. How many times has Satan entered Judas? That is on the list, though you might not understand why. Next, does Satan have to be merged with the Antichrist in order for the resurrection of the Antichrist to be effected? Do you think that Satan entering the Antichrist causes that resurrection? We'll get to that in a minute. Number three, did the Antichrist physically change when Satan entered him? Did you see a change? Or did he still look like the Antichrist? Or if you will, did Judas physically change? Was Judas similarly transformed? Did he look the same when Satan entered into him? Do you think Satan will enter into Judas And not change him, I guess would be another way to put it. Exactly, next question. Exactly what was Satan accusing the saints of at the judgment seat of Christ that started all of this? Satan is up there now as soon as that judgment seat happens. That is the believers in front of the throne. And Satan is there. And that begins this war in heaven. What was he accusing the saints of at the judgment seat of Christ? What is the meaning of 2 Thessalonians 2, 7 through 11? And let's read that. What does this mean? He says this in 6, verse 6. And now you know what is restraining, that he may be revealed in his own time. So he's talking about restraint. We discussed that last week. But here's verse 7. For the mystery of lawlessness, this is the mystery of the Antichrist. This is the mystery of the man of sin. That's what he's discussing. For the the eighth mystery of the eleven mysteries. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. What does that mean? The man of sin is already at work. Who wrote this? Paul wrote it. The mystery of lawlessness, the man of sin, the Antichrist, is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. The he is capitalized. So the restrainer is he. Who's that? Spirit of God. And then the lawless one will be revealed once the, re- the restraint is removed. I asked last week, how did this war in heaven start? How did it, how did, why did God allow it? Was he stopping where all the forces were there? They've always been there. They're side by side. They don't fight until something tees the fight. God has to remove the restraint. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan, with all power signs and lying wonders, and with all unrighteous deception among those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth. That's a person. Christ is the truth. That they might be saved. And for this reason, God will send them strong delusion. Okay. I'll finish that sentence in a minute. Strong delusion. And it's being sent by God. So whatever this is, God is doing it. Let's go back. And for this reason, God will send them strong delusion. Those who perish because they did not receive the love of Christ—they did not receive Christ. I substituted Christ for the truth. The truth should be capitalized there. And they might be that they might be saved. And for this reason, God will send them strong delusion that they should believe the lie. The lie is a person also. That's the antichrist. The truth. The lie. That they all may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. So we'll have to solve what all of that means. And it means a lot. Obviously a great deal there. The truth, the lie, both should be capitalized. As I said, Christ is the truth. Can't say that enough. The beast is the lie. That's the context of Thessalonians 2, 7 through 11. So, what is the strong delusion? God is going to send a strong delusion. When is he going to send a strong delusion? What is it? Why does he send it? When does he send it? The context is the lie and the truth. In the context of the lie and the truth, God sends a strong delusion. So that they shall believe the dragon beast. They're going to believe the lie. What's the lie? What is the strong delusion? Who's the they in that sentence? Is the strong delusion? Because remember the whole world upon the resurrection of the Antichrist worships the dragon beast, the combination of the two, the uniting, coalescing, combining. How do you combine these two people? Persons. One's not a people. One is a people who is also the son of Satan. So what is he? Again, submit your answers. Is the strong delusion related to the resurrection of the Antichrist, which results in the entire world not being saved? If so, let's concede the premise. Why does God send a strong delusion? What are the implications of Him doing it? And now we've got to find Mess Ollie. Effectively, this this issue sends its proponents into two camps, opposite sides of the gymnasium. I've been in a lot of gymnasiums with a lot of loud cheerleaders and bands, and I always wanted the band and the cheerleaders to be as far away from me as I could get them, much to their chagrin. Uh, And I know how loud you can get in these situations. And that's what I imagine. This issue, number five, separates people. And let the yelling commence. To be fair, one side has significantly fewer advocates. That would be my side, which I find puzzling. Again, how can they be disagreeing with me so fervently? They seem to be actually uh, uh, legitimately concerned that I'm wrong. And they're relentless. As I stated previously, the language at Revelation 5, 6 precludes the possibility that the Antichrist's death and resurrection is a resuscitation. Or a forgery. Or a fake. The language that John has at Revelation 13, 3 and 4 is ridiculously obvious. So between the two, Revelation 3, 3, and 4, and Revelation 5, 6, essentially the same idiom, language that is true of one will prevail in the other. And the fact that the Antichrist is slaughtered, butchered, head is emphasized in a way that leads you to believe it was removed. Um, Death, definitely dead. I think that's what we're wrestling with. I don't think there's any place else. So where does that leave us? Go ahead. John is not surprised. No, John's not surprised. And we'll get to that in a minute. That runs to the motive of the Antichrist and Satan. Jesus Christ in John 11.25 makes a very clear statement of facts that is going to ruin your life now as I give it to you and those of you on the, on the Internet. When we all stand in front of our judge at our trial, um, this is something that everyone who hears it has got to deal with. It's a choice. Christ says this at 11.25. I am the resurrection and the life. Do you believe this? Do you believe me? That I am the only resurrection and the only life? Do you believe me? Yes or no? There's your choice. There is no other. That implies what? Christ says that. That implies that somebody else will say, Hey, wait a minute. I'm the other resurrection. But Christ says, I'm the only one. And no stuttering. It's singular. No room for exceptions. Power of death is exclusionary. Only the creator of life has it. And Christ says, I am the one who created life. I am the one who took a physical machine and a spiritual element, a metaphysical element, and I put them together. And that's what you are. You are a combination of those two things. I'm the one that did it. Do you believe this? Yes or no. So thus, if someone is resurrected from the dead, God provided the forces required. You see how come people hate me now? They hate me for other reasons, some of them general appearance, some of them hygiene. but uh, when I, I'm being, they don't really hate me. They just think that I'm wrong and uh, therefore done. And they are more than anxious to tell me both. If someone is resurrected from the dead and God is the only one and he says so, I am the resurrection, the life. Then if someone is actually resurrected from the dead, God had to provide the means and for example, the life force, the intellect, the omniscience necessary to restore the degraded, destroyed components, that takes a lot. I have a dead body that has gone to corruption. It's starting to decompose. And I, the intellect necessary, the omniscience, how many components, how many cells does the body have? Let's just take the brain. Let's try the eye. I have to replace it. You know, he spit in the dirt and made an eye and he put it in somebody's head that was was missing an eye that was gouged out in a military conflict. That's the view that I've long held. Christ goes with a piece of dust, makes an eye and connects it. What kind of intellect is required for that? What does he have to consider to do that? Now I've got a dead, decomposed body. So that requires extraordinary creativity and the omniscience uh, that has to go with that creativity to to restore that those destroyed components, because they're they're destroyed. And so consider what is demanded to bring an eviscerated body to life, then restore the mind, the soul, and the spirit that was with that body and put it back together again. Only God can do this, to which most agree. Both sides of the gymnasium say that the the ability to resurrect a dead human being is God alone, which now raises more and more problems, as we should expect. And there is the position that the Antichrist is dead, and his soul and his spirit and his mind are gone, but the body is still there. So let me repeat that. There's this position. The Antichrist is dead, you will see that. He's dead, that's a dead body, or his body's dead. His soul, his spirit, his mind, gone, and they're not recoverable. They're gone to a place that uh, Satan doesn't have access to, can't get it. And then Satan enters the beheaded, split, pierced body, and drags it around, pretending it's a genuine, complete resurrection. That view is very prominent. Pretty much the weekend at Bernie's view. I'm told. I never watch movies because you're not allowed to talk during movies. I hope you're able to see the obvious flaws in this position. But this is a position that I confront on a routine basis. Obviously, in order to reanimate a decomposing body, nonetheless, exacts overwhelming challenges. If I'm right, duh... And the Goliath-Judas-Absalom pattern holds. This is a mutilated body, which I submit is a powerful characteristic that causes the world to marvel and worship. Because they know the body has been, been gutted. The entrails, the brain, they see what the three kings did to him. How much joy do you think the three kings had? Did they display the body of the Antichrist? Sure they did. We're the three kings that killed the Antichrist. That's his Christmas song, as you know. We three kings who killed the Antichrist and hung him up to rot deserve to be kings over the other seven, by the way. Ooh! The phrase which must not be uttered. And that causes the world to marvel and worship when that body is restored in resurrection. And if I'm correct, duh. That's one word, correct, duh. Besides staples, duct tape, and spandex, how does Satan convince the masses that this body he's toting around is really alive? If that's the view. And that happens to be the overwhelming consensus. Body's dead. Here it's gone, Satan says, okay, we've got to bring a welder, nail gun, I'm going to to put a two-by-four in here to straighten him up, and I'm going to haul him around, I'm going to hide inside of him, and I'm going to get you to pretend that this is really the Antichrist resurrected. That's the fake, fraudulent, counterfeit resurrection view. Do you like it? Don't raise your hand here. is only Satan's presence needed for a dead body to return to complete function. He's got a dead body. He's got to convince you that it's not a dead body, that it's really alive, and he can go inside of a dead body. can he go inside of a dead body? you got to go inside of a dead body if you hold to this counterfeit view, or this fraudulent view, or this fake death view. There's the swoon position, too, that he just swooned. Never mind the cutting to pieces. Of course, he swooned. His guts are all over the ground. That's what we call swooning. And now Satan goes into this dead body, and and all I need is Satan's presence to return it to complete function. What is the technological, biological, and spiritual differences between restoring a dead body to the point where the mind, soul, spirit can be reinserted. So if you have Satan taking this body and he fixes the body, he stands it up, he goes inside of it, and now it's animated. But he gets it back to a position where it looks like it's alive. All it's missing is Satan to make it act alive. Manifesting Satan now, Antichrist gone. Consensus view, that side of the gymnasium. Those of you who are sitting over there, if you want to move over here, feel free. In other words, this dragging the dead body around view has Satan either being an idiot with an obviously rotting corpse and going, hey, look, it's the Antichrist, he's alive. Worship us, all of the world, marvel, never mind the smell. Or you've granted Satan the intelligence and the capacity to reassemble a dead body. Establish the automatic functions, the unconscious functions. you know what, we, what, what I call driving. That's why I shouldn't give people my age. I can go for miles and have no idea where I am at any time. You should know when I'm moving, especially now the snow is all over the ground and it's 10 below whatever it is out there today. But he's got to establish the automatic functions, the heartbeat, the breathing, the fully nourished condition, muscularity, restore the decomposition, as I said. You say do you think Satan has that ability? He's at that level. Um, if he had that capability, would we have seen it before the Antichrist died? But he had done it to somebody else. Nimrod? Stalin? Hitler? He has the ability to do this. Why is it only the Antichrist that he does it to? Feel free to leave that side of the genome. I'm talking to you folks. You can come over into the light. Get out of the darkness. Boy, I can't wait for my mail. Trying to get some. You're saying that all Satan needed was the spirit and the mind to be installed, and so he installed himself. He restored that body. That's your position. And think about that capacity. Is it even possible to do this? Let me ask it this way. Must a resurrection require, the entirety uh, of the resurrection, require that both elements be instantaneous or simultaneous? In other words, I can't get a resurrection unless I put the body spirit and the body the spirit soul, and the body together at the same time. So is it even really possible that he could do something with the body that did not have the spirit of that body? In order to possess someone, does the demon or does the other spirit require the original spirit to be there? That's my question. Which returns us to the problem of only God alone. Only Jesus Christ. Power to overcome death rests with God, period. Now, what does that mean here? That means that God resurrected the Antichrist. Because Satan can't do it. And Satan and the Antichrist both knew that God would resurrect the Antichrist. And they knew when he would do it. And that presents, uh, of course, and when that occurs, that presented another choice to the world. Which is what Satan is always doing, putting choices in front of the world. Here's the question rephrased in another form. Who raised the Antichrist from the dead? Two positions. The dragon did it, or the lamb did it? And which did the world choose? The world said that the land... I'm sorry. I said it badly. Screwed up. Start again. New, new soda. The world. Intelligence restored. Gosh, you know, they should appreciate me. They really should. They don't. And thankfully, I got John out there in Pennsylvania working hard on my behalf. That's a hilarious... The world saw the choice: who resurrected the antichrist? Was it the dragon, or was it the lamb? And they chose the dragon, and therefore worshipped the dragon and worshipped the lamb because they believe the dragon resurrected him. Is that the strong delusion sent by God? But for today. Uh Just remember, the Lamb stops all death for five months in the tribulation. Revelation 9-6, that's still on the plate. We've got to solve that. I believe that Revelation 9-6 and, Re- and Revelation 13, 3 and 4 uh, have a relationship. Next week we'll take that on. But for today, why would God resurrect the Antichrist and then allow Satan to put that choice before mankind, knowing that mankind would choose... The dragon as the source of the resurrection. Why would God do that? And what is thinking? What is Satan? Satan, What is Satan thinking? By now he knows Revelation 12:12. He knows how this is going to end. Doesn't affect him. Again, three-dimensional chess. Quit playing old fish or go fish. Old maid. I mixed my metaphors. Quit playing. Go made. Satan knows how this is going to end. What's motivating him and the Antichrist to continue? How many times has the Antichrist been dead? He's experienced of this death thing and he's experienced it being cut to pieces. That's my position, as you know. And who's deluded by all of this? Is Satan and the beast deluded? Are the fallen angels, are they under the strong delusion? Do they have, are they believing that Satan resurrected the Antichrist? No, they're not. So who is the delusion, the deluded ones? Who is given the strong delusion? God sends it. Who is, who is under the delusion that Satan and the beast are able, able to overcome death? And it's not any old delusion. It is the strong delusion. If you've got God sending this, knowing that this is what's going to happen, then you have the complicity of God. And by that I mean God sends the strong delusion, God resurrects the Antichrist, and what happens next? Millions are killed. Millions. Millions go forever into judgment and condemnation. Is God, therefore, an accessory? No. God is always good. Matthew ten twenty eight. He says, don't be concerned, don't fear, those who can merely kill the body. I'm adding words to it to make it more obvious, not making it better. But don't be concerned. Don't fear those who merely kill the body but cannot kill the soul. But rather fear me, God says. Jesus Christ says, fear me. I'm Jesus Christ. I'm the one who is able to do both. So don't fear Satan. Don't fear physical death. Next week we're going to determine what all of that means and how it is that God is doing what is right and good. You have to see the goodness And the resurrection of the Antichrist is your final piece. Next week, we'll try it again.